We start, though, with the fight in Surrey now over those lawn signs uh, on supporting the RCMP. Surrey City Council has now voted to expand a sign bylaw to cover citizen initiatives. There's a petition drive going on in Surrey right now. A lot of people have got keep the RCMP lawn signs up on their lawn. Surrey City Council, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, he doesn't like that one bit. Let's check in with Bill Thielman now. He's part of the campaign there, the petition drive. Hey, Bill. Hey, Mike. Okay, thanks for coming on. So how many of these lawn signs are up around Surrey right now? Keep the RCMP in Surrey. How many are there, do you think? Approximately 7,000. Whoa, that's a lot. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, I'm I'm with the Surrey Police Vote Campaign, which is for the initiative to hold a referendum on, on policing in Surrey. But before we got going with this initiative under the Elections BC authorization of that, there was a group, is a group called Keep the RCMP in Surrey, and they started campaigning a couple of years ago, and they put out a lot of signs. And those signs are uh, freedom of expression, freedom of speech. And Surrey Council, the slim majority of Mayor Doug McCallum and his crew, uh, just decided no, they they can't go, they can't, you can't do that anymore. But it's a very broad-reaching bylaw, and it would include you or I, if we were Surrey residents, putting up a sign saying "fight climate change" or uh, "fight racism" or anything practically that might well, be political. Well, I've seen a lot of lawn signs around that say uh, "protect old growth forests" yep, right now. Go. I mean, that would, you that would be that would be illegal. That would be illegal. Absolutely. The argument is that it would be political, and therefore you can't do it. Okay, so these 7,000 lawn signs in Surrey keep the RCMP in Surrey. Those are now illegal in Surrey? Illegal, yes. So they got to come down. That's my that's my understanding of the bylaw, absolutely. Well, what happens if you don't take it down? You get fined by the city oh, of Surrey. How much is the fine? Uh, that I can't tell you exactly, um, and I don't know if it if it increases if you don't take it down, but... Pretty clearly, you know, I think that the most important point, Mike, is this is a violation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which guarantee as Canadians across the country our right to freedom of expression or freedom of speech. And we've seen previous cases in Ontario where, uh, in one case, a, a musician was posting signs on uh, telephone poles and things for his upcoming gigs, and he was fined for it, and he said, you can't do that, it's my freedom of expression. And the Supreme Court of, of uh, Ontario agreed with him, uh, and, wow. and that was the, you know, that's kind of a definitive well, case. Well, in Surrey, and other municipalities have these similar rules around election lawn signs, right? Like, you can't put up a political sign on your lawn saying, like, vote liberal or whatever, um, unless there is an election actually happening in a, in a writ period. And then outside of that, you know, those type of political lawn signs are not allowed. That's the situation in, in Surrey. And that's my understanding. That's the rule that's been there for a while. And Surrey City Council is saying, well, look, we're just expanding that to include uh, these other these other political fights. Like this fight over the RCMP is a political fight, so it should be the same rules. And unless there's a referendum going on, which is what you guys are trying to achieve here, you want a referendum on on the RCMP, then you can't have those signs up. So if if there was a refer if there was a referendum happening on this, the signs would be allowed. Is that, that is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. my that's my understanding. So yeah. what they're but I mean, how coincidental that in the middle of an initiative drive they decide to pass this bylaw uh, because I mean, and you know, Mike, if this was taken on a, as a one step. Uh, it would be one thing, and it would still be, I think, unconstitutional. But when you look at what's happened in Surrey, the mayor banned seven Surrey citizens from attending any anything at City Hall. The mayor had bylaw infraction officers come and shadow our campaign and then give tickets 
because we were, quote, advertising something that's authorized, a collection of signatures authorized by Elections BC. The mayor attempted to shut down uh, canvassing at the Savon Foods where he, he alleged and is now under some kind of investigation by uh, police that he alleged he was hit by one of our supporters with a car. So there's, there's one thing after another after another, and they're terrified of having a referendum on policing because they are well, quite sure they would lose. Well, I don't know why they're so terrified because it sounds like you know, McCallum supports getting rid of the RCMP. He wants a local police force. And he's got the majority. He, he promised that in the last municipal election, and he still has a majority on that council. So I don't even know how you stop this train from going down the tracks at this point. Like, what is he afraid of? Oh, I mean, like he's, I, he, Mike, he's afraid that we actually would get a referendum. The province could order a referendum tomorrow morning <clears throat> under the B.C. Referenda Act. That would say citizens of Surrey... Uh, get a, have a vote on whether they want to proceed with this very expensive change to the Surrey Police Service or keep the RCMP. That's what he's afraid of, and that's what he doesn't want to have happen. And um, so that could happen at any point under provincial legislation. Um, or otherwise, this is going to become the Surrey Municipal Election issue of all issues in next October. And so they are just trying to um, you know get this thing past the point of no return. But there isn't such a point. Okay, well, I'm not sure the provincial government wants to get involved in this mess in Surrey, so I'm not sure we're going to get a referendum on this. I'll, I'll be kind of surprised if we do, but I, I know you're working hard to try and make one happen. But let me let me ask you this. 7,000 lawn signs up in Surrey keep the RCMP in Surrey now illegal. What are you telling your supporters who have these lawn signs up who want to keep the RCMP? Are you telling them, hey, guys, you better obey the law or you're going to get fined. Go take those signs down. Or are you telling them, no, stick it to Doug McCallum. Keep those signs up. Like, what's your instruction to your, your supporters? Well, we're certainly not telling anyone to take down a sign that ex- expresses their own freedom of expression. Uh, absolutely not. We're not going to do that. And neither is the Keep the RCP in Surrey group. They're, they're not, definitely not going to do that. So if the, if the Surrey City Council, Slim Majority, want to have a fight over the bylaw and go to court and go to uh, ultimately Supreme Court of Canada, I guess that's their right. But it, it's, a, it's a bad bylaw. It's an affront to democracy. I don't think any court is going to hold it up. Are there any other lawn signs up on the other side of this thing? Like if anyone put up lawn signs saying, we get rid of the RCMP, we want a local police force, keep policing local. Any no. sign? There's no, 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 no. Maybe they, I have, well, maybe I, they if, should if get there their own. There, I, I could show you film footage of how many signs there are saying keep the RCMP. I haven't seen any that are supporting. Uh, 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 if there are, there are very few. Well, instead of making the other guys sign illegal, maybe you should put up, you know, have a campaign to yeah. put your own signs up. Well, there is, there is, Mike, there is a campaign right now, and, uh, you know, there's the opportunity for groups to advertise against uh, the referendum and put up signs and do all the things that you can do in a in a uh, initiative campaign right now. And there doesn't seem to be very much activity other than out of Surrey City Council's majority, but uh, I don't see any groundswell. And, Mike, we know from polling that's been done publicly and released publicly, 70% of people in Surrey agree with having a referendum, and that includes, no doubt, okay. some people who support Surrey Police Service, but the, the referendum referendum is the you know the most effective and fair way to decide a controversial and expensive issue and and I don't know why mayor McCallum and his council colleagues are so afraid of it especially if they think it's a great idea it'll pass easily then okay i spoke to Diane Watts on the show about this mm-hmm. yesterday the former mayor of surrey about this lawn sign war in the city now and here's what she had to say about it here's Diane Watts yesterday 
Well, you know what? I mean, yeah, the battle rages on between the mayor, city council, and the residents, right? Um, you know, it, it, as long as there's signs on private property, they, the bylaw officers cannot uh, cannot take them down. But, you know, suffice to say, I think that you know, within the city, there's some more pressing issues than uh, taking down signs. Well, shouldn't they leave people's lawn signs alone? Uh, like, yeah. Come on. yeah. No kidding. <laughs> Okay, well, she says bylaw officers can't take down the signs. I'm not so sure about that. If they passed a bylaw, the signs are illegal. Aren't the bylaw officers allowed to take the signs down, Bill Tillman? I, I would be very hesitant if I was a bylaw officer, and I, and I feel bad for them because they've been put in a tough spot here, but I, I wouldn't be trespassing on somebody else's property to take a sign down. They might issue a ticket and put it in the mail for you and say this is the address and mail it to you, but I think somebody coming onto my property or your property to take a sign down that I put up, whether it's for my kid's fundraiser at school or uh, climate change or, or, or about the RCMP, I think that would be okay. uh, very questionable, uh, either legally or, or practically speaking, to do that. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about the lawn sign fight in the city of Surrey, the battle over the future of the RCMP raging on. Those lawn signs keep the RCMP in Surrey. City Council saying they're illegal now. Bill Thielman is my guest. Let's go to your calls. Terry in Surrey. Hi, Terry. Hi. Um, yeah, I just want to say uh, this whole issue with lawn signs for Keep the RCMP is is different than any other signs because it's another sign that Doug McCallum's trying to shut down the conversation. Um, and uh, as opposed to, like, political signs where you go and have a vote and you have your say, this is just another thing, another symptom of him just not wanting to talk about it and refusing us to have a say. And quite frankly, people who have the signs, that's just indicating how we feel about his move to a yeah, municipal you, police force. Do you have one of those lawn signs? I should, because I, I totally believe we should keep the RCMP and, and at the very least have a say as to what we want. Like, we can't even have it at uh, the, the town hall. Like, he shuts every yeah. conversation down. Okay, Terry, thanks for the call. Lots of calls here. Donna in Surrey. Hi, Donna. Hi. Never thought I'd be living like this. So I have to confess, I voted for the man, but I voted for him because of the SkyTrain issue, and I think a lot of people got bamboozled by that offer of the SkyTrain versus the Zippy track down there in Wally. <laughs> so I've been out here a long time, and I'm telling you, I've lived my life out here, and I've never yeah. seen this sort of chaos going on here. The bylaws are not being followed at all on anything, so why can't I put a sign in my yard when my neighbor can build a whole new house on the back of their house and <laughs> just pay the fines and move on? All right, Donna, thank you for the call. Let's squeeze a couple more in here. Roy and Surrey. Hi, Roy. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Thanks for Good. the call. Sure, go ahead. Uh, I mean, this is a city. It's not a medieval country with King McCollum in charge. I mean, what's <laughs> next? Uh, you know, buy a lot to set my thermostat to a certain temperature because it's a climate change issue. I mean, where are we going with this? Well, I wonder... a political person on this mic. Uh, I don't have one on time, but I'm getting it just to prove well, the point. Well, I'm glad you said that, Roy, because, you know, Bill, for your thoughts, I'm just wondering if, if maybe this kind of backfires on, on McCallum. Like, maybe it just oh, fires yeah. up people even more if they want to oh. try and fight to keep the RCMP. Mike, honestly, from a campaign perspective, this is a gift to our campaign for a referendum because it clearly shows uh, how out of touch the mayor is, how much the, he is trying to shut down any um, any sort of differing voice in Surrey that wants to have 
referendum that wants to keep the RCMP. I, you know, I, I think it's a huge political mistake on their part. Uh, uh-huh. But, uh, but nonetheless, it's going to have a very detrimental effect on all sorts of freedom of expression, and not just mm-hmm. for our campaign for Surrey Police Vote, but for anything campaign. And you know, it, it kind of, I, I really like the King McCallum thing. It kind of smacks of some banana republic that just decides, well, we, we don't like, you know, the, the boss doesn't like this, who's in charge of the country or whatever, so we're going to change the laws. Um, no, that's not the way it should work. Okay, let's go to Joe on the line in Surrey. Hi, Joe. Morning, how are you? Good, go ahead. I, I not only have two signs on my front lawn saying to keep the RCMP in Surrey, I also have two stickers on the back of my truck, and I've never been so happy as to hear that last week he is being under investigation for uh, public mischief. That is absolutely... Well, okay, careful, though. We don't, we're, not, we're not totally certain what the, the circumstances of that. Um, but let me, let me ask you this. Are you going... You got two lawn signs, right? I do. You going to take them down now? Not a chance. <laughs> I what what, what I, if they come and give you a ticket? Uh, they're not going to give me a ticket because right. I got cameras. When they come on the lawn to try to take that sign down, I'm going to get them charged with theft under five thousand, and oh. that'll be that. All right, Joe. Thanks for the call, Scott in Surrey. Hey, Scott. Hey, the sign thing is just a distraction. The fact of the matter is the Surrey Police Force is going ahead. The fact of the matter is that the RCMP have have claimed that the RCMP detachment Surrey model will not be able to be sustained, so we need to change. Tillman just wants to kick it down the road so we can pay more for it 10 years from now? No, it's ridiculous. You know, honestly, yes, the mayor's an idiot, but the fact of the matter is is that this whole opposition to the Surrey police force needs to go away. Okay, so you support a local police force, right? It has to happen. It's not whether oh, okay. I support it or not. It has to happen. Okay, Bill, what do you say to that? we got a minute here. Well, I'm glad that he agrees with our opinion of the mayor, at least. Um, look, if it's a great idea, let people vote and let it decide. This is the transition costs, Mike. They just estimated, again, already $63 million in transition costs alone. Uh, we're going to have less police for more more taxation in Surrey. That's the whole argument here. And okay. I think if people think that's the wrong idea or the right idea, they should be able to decide. Bill, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. And here we go now with 5G development in Canada. Should Huawei, the Chinese telecom giant, be banned from 5G in this country? That's the burning question in Canada right now after China jailed the two Michaels for more than a 1,000 days after Canada had arrested Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. What a great panel I've got standing by on this for you. But first, have a listen to this here. This is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And after the two Michaels, Michaels were finally released. Uh, Trudeau was asked, will Huawei be banned from Canada 5G development? Here's what he said. Obviously, it's very good news uh, that the Michaels have been returned to Canada. And I want to thank all the incredible public servants uh, and diplomats and officials who worked unbelievably hard to get to this moment, uh, as well as thanking our partners and allies around the world who stood strongly in solidarity uh, with Canada and specifically uh, with these two Canadians. Uh, Obviously, as we uh, develop our plan for governing, as we pull together our positioning, um, this will have an impact. And uh, we look forward to... uh, sharing a decision on on many different issues, including on uh, telecommunications and Huawei uh, in the coming weeks. Okay, so that decision getting closer, whether Huawei will be allowed into 5G in Canada, let's discuss now with my guests. Stockwell Day on the line, former Federal Minister of International Trade for Canada, former leader of the opposition in the House of Commons. He's a past director of the Canada-China Business Council. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mr. Day, thank you for coming on today. Always good to be with you, Mike. 
Okay, also on the line is Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. He's been a very outspoken critic of China. Brad, mayor West, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Brad West, let me go to you first. Should Huawei be banned from Canada 5G? Absolutely. It's fundamentally a question of trust. And who should Canadians trust? Should we trust Australia, the UK, Japan, Taiwan, New Zealand, the United States, Sweden, France, countries that have either banned China or effectively banned China uh, from uh, Huawei from participating in 5G or, or having them phased out? Uh, or do you trust the Chinese Communist Party that says Huawei is completely arm's length from us and, you know, it's used in Russia, it's used in Turkey, it's used in Iran? We have in this country CSIS and the Canadian military saying don't allow Huawei into Canada's 5G network. So at the end of the day, is Canada going to stand with its allies and all those other countries that have made this decision? Or is it going to place its trust in the Chinese Communist Party that says, oh, don't worry, Uh, we'll make sure that Huawei doesn't spy on our behalf? Okay, let's go. Stockwell Day, your thoughts? Well, I don't think anybody should have trust in any communist party uh, for all the reasons I think that we would understand for communist parties generally when in any country have an absolutely horrific record when it comes to human rights. Uh, I, I appreciate Brad raising issues of human rights. I've never heard him speak about Cuba and their horrific record. I've never heard him speak about some of the nations in the Middle East who have atrocious human rights records. It's always good to speak about one country, no issue of that. And I, in fact, agree. I'm a little more comforted when I hear people speak uh, a little more broadly about the record. In terms of Huawei, it needs to be asked a little more specifically, and I can tell you what, uh, the Prime Minister and the Federal Liberals have been agonizingly slow in coming out with all of all Canadian telecoms are waiting for decisions on this. You know that their, um, <clears throat> their lack of speed on this has put Canada in number 38 position in terms of developing 5G in the world. We're in number 38 on, uh, on 5G, and 5G has great promise, as we know, in terms of economic recovery. So we're very slow on that. I'm very frustrated. We've got to define, and maybe Brad can be clear, when he says ban Huawei, does that then mean, and the federal government does that mean pairing out all of the infrastructure that is in place now across the country with all the telecoms in terms of the uh, involvement of Huawei that has been permitted and analyzed by the Canadian security establishment for years in a step-by-step process? Now, if that's what they're saying, then let's get on with it. Let's get it done. And you'll see recently the, all the major telecoms, I believe, now are on record saying they're moving away from Huawei, looking at getting that uh, very needed uh, capabilities by companies like Nokia and Ericsson, for instance. So they've already made that decision. But uh, is, is Brad saying tear it all out to a cost of billions of dollars? of what's existing, or is he just saying future? So there's the considerations that have to be taken. Okay, okay. well, Brad, Brad West, what about that point? Huawei's been doing business in Canada for many years. Your thoughts? Well, first, just to say that uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, 
Cuba, countries in the Middle East aren't trying to build Canada's 5G. So that's why the comments have been specific about uh, Huawei and its obvious links to the Chinese Communist Party, but I do condemn all human rights abuses. Uh, and speaking of human rights abuses, Huawei has been involved in the surveillance of Uyghurs, who we know are uh, facing a brutal genocide uh, perpetrated by the, the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, I don't believe that Huawei uh, has a track record that should allow it to participate in this country for a variety of reasons. Is it going to happen overnight in terms of phasing it out? No, it's not. But a number of countries are doing it. And why are they doing it? Because Huawei operates as an arm of the Chinese Communist Party. Mr. Day and uh, his colleagues at the Canada-China Business Council, of which Huawei is a member, have tried to obscure that fact. But that is one of the primary reasons why in the countries that I listed, Australia, the UK, Japan, Taiwan, New Zealand, United States, and onwards, they are phasing okay. them out or they are banning them. Mr. Day and the Canada-China Business Council say, no, let's go the route of China, Russia, Turkey, Iran. Uh, it, it's, it's very clear uh, that the actions of the Chinese Communist Party just recently highlight the fact that they are one and the same with Huawei. How do okay. we know? When Meng Wanzhou returns to China, yeah. she gets a hero's welcome organized by the Chinese Communist Party. Why did the Chinese Communist Party kidnap two of our fellow citizens and hold them hostage if they're completely separate from okay, Huawei? Stockwell Day. Uh, some key points. Actually, I couldn't agree more with much of what Brad is saying, especially the atrocious um, issues that are happening related to the Uyghurs. I've traveled to those regions. Um, then why should they be allowed met, into our country? Why should okay, they be okay, re rewarded, okay. Mr. Yep. Day? Okay. Yeah, Brad, I, Brad, I was politely listening to yours. I'll ask you to listen to mine now. Thank you. Um, I've traveled to those countries. I've sat down face-to-face -face with the officials and not on behalf of any business council. But as a Canadian citizen, I've established a bit of a record in terms of trade agreements. And so, the, I'm, you know, I, I have a certain sway in which I'm able to face these folks face-to-face. -face. I went actually as a private citizen and met with the CEO of Huawei, talked about heard from him about his daughter being in um, under house arrest in Vancouver. And I said, yeah, you know, uh, she's allowed to walk around and shop and do all kinds of things. And I appreciate it to your daughter. Our two Michaels are not allowed to do that. Our two Michaels are in military confinement. They're not allowed access. So I, I, I take these things face to face. I don't even know what the, the uh, since I've, I, I had a good term and I enjoyed it with the Canada Business Council, I think we advanced issues related to uh, canola sales and soybean sales to China. Uh, so, you know, is Brad talking about shutting down business of China? Because if he is, he's got to talk about the uh, Coca-Cola um, investment in Port Coquitlam and their employees there. He's got to talk about GE in Port Coquitlam. Are we supposed to shut all that down, all their business with Let China? Me, what about Nike? Mis Mr. Day. So... So I think we need to really take a broad thing, and I couldn't agree more in terms of human rights um, abrogations that are happening related what about, to China. Mr. Day, what about specifically to Huawei in Canada, though? Do you think, you think specifically Huawei should be banned from 5G development, or do you think they should be allowed in? You know, it's such a tough question. I agree with what the telecoms are doing now in terms of their shifting. They're shifting to Nokia and Ericsson for a variety of reasons, and 
when you've worked with, when anybody has worked with the Canadian security establishment, as long as the telephones are, I'm not being a defender of this, it's just that's the process in terms of determining the, the capacity. You know, can we be spied on? Nobody wants to be spied on, obviously. And so let's see what the government's going to do and come out and see are they going to ban or not. They're, they're taking so long, it's excruciating, do you, and that's hurting us. That's hurting our development as Canadians, so get on with it. So right. here's what they are doing. And so, you know, would, would Brad be saying, let's then move away from Huawei and let's go to the two other world leaders, which are Nokia and Ericsson? Okay, Brad West. So, yeah, Mike, it, it is actually an easy question. I'm not sure why Mr. Day has such a challenge in answering it. Yes, they should be banned. I mean, I'm sorry, but it belies belief, I'm trying to understand that uh, of his own volition, on his own dollar, uh, Mr. Day traveled to China to meet with the CEO of Huawei uh, just to talk about old times? I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, that has nothing to do with your advocacy as part of the Canada-China Business Council, your, your former board of directorship uh, on TELUS and its connections to Huawei uh, and what those organizations have at stake in this decision. I, I mean, I have a hard time uh, <laughs> accepting that, So, but maybe you decide to take that random trip. Um, look, the, the reality is, again, uh, the speed of the decision, yeah, absolutely. Count me in, I agree. This is a very simple decision, and, and the federal government should make it because it's been made in countries where we have uh, similar values, shared interests. We share intelligence as part of the, the five eyes. Uh, there, there's simply no good reason why we should reward the Chinese Communist Party and Huawei, one and the same, uh, based on the actions that okay. they have taken, not only in this country, but around the world. All right, welcome back. As we continue our discussion about uh, Chinese telecom giant Huawei and 5G development in Canada, should Huawei be banned from 5G in our country? My guests are Stockwell Day, Canada's former Minister of International Trade. He's a past director of the Canada-China Business Council. Brad West, Mayor of Port Coquitlam. Mr. Day, one of the big criticisms or worries about Huawei, if they were allowed into 5G development in Canada, is whether China would use that network to spy on Canadian citizens. And I know you're a former Minister of Public Safety in Canada, and you had some responsibility for cybersecurity in our country. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, could Huawei, uh, could China spy on Canada with it, through a Huawei 5G network here? I think any communist government, including China's, would take almost any opportunity they could to spy in, in whatever company. So I think we should have our eyes wide open about that. And I think we should look at, do we have the capability when we're looking at equipment that could be used to be, uh, you know, uh, to facilitate spying? Absolutely, that should be a concern. Uh, and we, our eyes should be wide open on it. Um, the other issue, of course, is related to the length of time it's taking to get a decision on this. I think we'd be far more comfortable if we could get this area concluded. Um, I, I think Canadians also should have their eyes wide open. When you're looking at Nokia and Ericsson, which these other companies that Brad listed um, are switching to because they are world leaders, Nokia and Ericsson are significantly invested in China in terms of their research, in terms of their product development. So what do we do with that? And I'd like to hear from Brad. Do we also then ban 
our telecoms if they're going to do business with McPeak and Ericsson. As a matter of fact, as they are now, they're switching to that. And also, in, in debate, I would appreciate that we have clarity. I was very clear on my purpose of the trip to go and meet with the CEO of, of Huawei at, at a time when some Canadians were quite rightly worried about traveling to China. So it was a some risk to look him in the eye and tell him the difference between his daughter, and I appreciate his concerns for his daughter. We should all be concerned for, for our family and our safety. I know the mayor li- loves to showcase his family at every opportunity, and that's a, that's a decision he makes, and I certainly respect his family. But, you know, we've got concerns on this issue, and I want to eyeball that man in China and talk about our two Canadians. As I eyeballed over the years, the top Canadian uh, Chinese officials, for instance, when we were getting criticized for allowing the Dalai Lama to come into China or to come into Canada. And I said, I'm sorry, Canada's a democracy. The Dalai Lama wants to come to Canada. He will be welcomed. Okay. When I spoke directly to Chinese officials on North Korea issues and actually worked, as, as many did, on the background on uh, what North Korea is doing in, in, uh, to Canadians. So uh, please don't talk and talk about going there to talk about old times. That is called being untrue. So okay, let me let me go. Just that. okay, yeah. we're just running out of time. Yeah, Brad a, West. a couple of things, Mike. Mr. Day is right. I am a, a proud father. I'm showing my family. I'm not sure what his point is there. Uh, what I'm pointing out is, it is a bit odd that when Mr. Day has no official capacity with the Canadian government. He travels to China to meet with the CEO of Huawei, he says, to talk about the two Michaels. Why would the CEO of Huawei even want to meet with Mr. Day? I'm pointing out that at the same time, he has a position in the Canada-China Business Council, of of which Huawei is a member, and he had been vocal and has been vocal about his views that we should not ban Huawei. I'm not sure why he's avoiding answering your question, Mike, about whether Huawei should be banned now. As we've covered, and Mr. Day says he agrees, Huawei and the, and the Chinese Communist Party are one and the same. Huawei is helping facilitate genocide of Uyghurs. Uh, Huawei will spy on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. So why not ban them? Okay, okay, uh, Stockwell, I'll give you 30 seconds here to wrap it up here. Out of time, I'm afraid. Go ahead. If our, if our government says we should ban them, we should ban them. I think human rights are first, security is second. I've never heard the mayor of Proquitlam talk about any other communist regime and i think he should and he hasn't said why he hasn't and i think if transparency is the issue i think he should check and see maybe i don't know is it the united steelworkers that he used to work for a contract with the media that are not allowing him to criticize other socialist countries i've never heard him criticize venezuela which is starving their citizens to death as a socialist country so when he has a little more breadth and understanding on these issues, and I hear him criticizing other communist countries. Thank you, gentlemen. More convinced of his consistency. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the big announcement yesterday. Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry announcing COVID-19 capacity limits will be lifted in much of British Columbia for indoor events and gatherings. Proof of vaccination will be required, but it does mean that uh, big events are back on, including the Vancouver Canucks home opener, which is this October 26th versus the Minnesota Wild. Uh, That will be 100% fan capacity in the stands there at Rogers Arena. The capacity there 
for a hockey game, 18,910. And we'll see if they have a full house there for the Canucks home opener next week. It means lots of other events will be allowed to go forward with full capacity as well, including sporting events, weddings, and uh, concerts. Let's discuss the weddings part of it now with my guest, Sarah Stevenson. Sarah is the lead planner and general manager at The Good Party which is a creative planning and party production company. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. This is an exciting announcement, I'm sure, for you and, and your colleagues. What did you think about when you what did you think when you heard that yesterday? Full capacity for weddings. Yeah, it is, you know, for those people who have booked indoor venues, it's really a positive step and we've already got some people jumping to up their guest list, which is exciting and really heartening to see. Um Still a bit of uncertainty, though, so, you know, we're cautiously optimistic, but still working on figuring out what that's going to look like exactly in real life. Right. What a difficult time this has been for people in your business with, with event production planning. I mean, man, the, the rules that have been changing all the time. I mean, what was it like this past this past summer for, for weddings? Did you have many weddings? Yeah, we did, actually. Um, we ended up with about 60 events over our wow. 2021 season which was phenomenal and events that looked like all different things. Some were, you know, two personal events and some were 150 people dancing outside under a tent. Like things were almost back to normal. It was um, heartening, but it was super condensed. It was hard. We won't lie. <laughs> it wow. was a lot of last minute planning. No, I'm sure it was very difficult with a lot of scrambling for sure. Now you've got full capacity starting next uh, later this uh, on October 25th is when this kicks mm-hmm. in. And are you now expecting a a busy fall season? Yeah, you know, it is starting to get there. We're starting to get more inquiries for some of those parties, like birthdays and Christmases that they weren't sure if they were going to go through. Um, We are looking forward to that. Most weddings, though, I think really we're going to see a busy spring, to be honest with you. Right, right. Have, Have some people already planned a wedding and now they're thinking, okay, now we can invite more people? Yes, in fact, the couple I was just talking with last night, they are booked in at a hotel and we were about to send out their invites and we're going to up it, you know. It's uh, it's really exciting. We're still not sure exactly what all of the restrictions for indoors are going to look like. Right now, there's still no dancing. Likely have to be masks when you're up and walking around, but it's one step closer for those people who are indoor. Um, but outdoor is still looking like a really good and kind of your yeah. best bet for next year. Okay, speaking to Sarah Stevenson, she is a party planner with the Good Party. And okay, the dancing is I'm a little confused about the dancing yeah. part because, you know, everybody wants to dance at a wedding. Um and I th- I saw some conflicting information yesterday about whether dancing will be allowed or not at a wedding. Do you know? I mean, I know I think as much as anyone does right now and that we were all watching it and kind of the vendor community had the same reaction of okay, dancing, it sounds like it's going to be back on. And then by the end of the press conference, Bonnie did clarify, sorry, Dr. Henry, did clarify that dancing is still not on indoors anywhere as right now. Um, We're excited to see, but you can still dance outside. Um, But to be honest, this has kind of been the process of planning over the last two years. You know, we hear these announcements from, from the government, we get a gist of what's coming, but we don't really get the specifics until the day they come in, sometimes the day later. It's been hard to navigate, but... You can trust that we're doing our best to keep refreshing that website and reading and trying to interpret what's going on. Yeah, yeah, this is kind of 
situation normal when these announcements come out it's not fully clear exactly how it's going to work and then you wait for the fine print to come out and then make your plans accordingly so i guess this is why people hire professionals like you especially at times like this it can be it can be really confusing um proof of vaccination still required right so if you have a wedding you have to have proof of vaccination to attend the wedding is that correct for indoor venues, yes. For indoor, indoor venues right. of over 50 people, um, that is correct. Full vaccination, right. which has been working really well, to be honest. Okay. How does that work? Like, who does, who checks the vaccination uh, re- uh, passport at a wedding? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's a little bit dependent on the venue. Really, when we're working with clients in those venues, we start with them. Oftentimes, we're seeing that the venue team is taking that on as it's specifically required for their venue. Um, That being said, sometimes they don't have the capacity, they don't have the staff, and it's falling to the couple. In those situations, the couple can have a family member or a friend even do it kind of, you know, the same way you would assign an MC. We just have new wedding roles now. Um, But our team is also happy to step up and do it and add an extra team member if they want to hire us for that. It's honestly quite a simple process. You download the app, it works really well, and it's you know, I did it just two weekends ago, actually, myself personally, and it was fun to connect with all the guests as they were coming in. Okay, so you actually had to, you were checking, you were checking the vaccine card at the door mm-hmm. for, at a wedding, okay. I did, did, yeah. How did that go? Really well. Everyone was yeah. super prepared, you know. We're really um, just advising our couples and clients to just communicate, communicate, communicate. As yeah. long as everyone knows what's coming, everyone's super happy. Yeah, you, communication, I imagine, would be the key there. You don't want any surprises when people show up. Right. No, exactly. And I mean, even as much as people know they need to have their proof of vaccine, it's also important to remember that you need to bring your wallet because you need that ID. So if you've switched into your, you know, fancy purse for the wedding, make sure you've transferred that over. Right. (laughs) Speaking to Sarah Stevenson from The Good Party, what has this been like for your customer relations? I mean, it's got to be frustrating for your customers who are trying to plan a happy event and they've got to navigate through all these rules and the rules change. I mean, do you get some unhappy customers sometimes? I mean, I may be unhappy with the situation, but everyone just knows it's hard for everyone out there. And there's a lot of kindness and compassion, especially in our industry, especially here on the island. Um, and really, when it comes down to it, it's just, you know, reminding everyone that you just kind of have to pick your priorities and take back a little bit of control over your wedding day. So if your priorities are, you know, having really great family photos and sharing good food, then maybe when we get that, you know, blow that dancing still isn't allowed, it doesn't really bring you down as much because you know what you have your sights set on. Um, But to be honest, everyone that we've had go ahead from 2020 and 2021 under a million different versions of the restrictions, it feels like, the common thread has been they're so happy that they did and they really couldn't have imagined their wedding any other way. All right. what's What's the smallest wedding that you've done? Yeah, uh, two people, just the couple, and then the officiant, myself, and a photographer. Oh, so okay. you really can't get more intimate. We were, we were the witnesses. <laughs> it was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a pretty small wedding. It was still fun, though, right? Oh, so fun and so <laughs> memorable. And, you know, that's where all the emotion comes from when it's just the two of you two. So. Right, right. And what's the, what's the biggest event you've been able to have? Um. Myself, personally, as a lead planner, I did a wedding for, I believe, 170 on a private property under a tent this summer when dancing was allowed. Mm. Um, That was kind of the first moment that, honestly, it really hit that, like, wow, things are coming back and you're seeing those moments that everyone's looking for at a wedding again.
Yeah, yeah, and we all want we all want to get back to normal and going to weddings and enjoying them. And it's interesting that we've got uh, different rules in different parts of the province now. So we have some we have some areas like in Northern Health, for example, or areas in parts of, of Fraser Health where they still have capacity limits. I wonder, are you hearing from any potential clients in some of these areas saying, like, can we come to, you're in Victoria, can we come and have a, a, a bigger wedding in Victoria? Is that possible? I mean, it is technically possible. It's not something we're seeing because, honestly, most couples just want to forge through with what they've envisioned and what they've planned at this point. Yeah. You know, and sometimes that does mean, okay, 50 people can't come anymore. That's okay. We're still going ahead. And honestly, for the most part, they're just continuing to work within their communities and the restrictions that they have. Okay, Sarah, it's challenging days for you and your colleagues there at the good party, but uh, it sounds like we're finally getting back to a little bit of normality here, hopefully more in the days ahead. And hopefully we can get up and dance at a wedding, right? Is, is that what you're hoping, that as they clarify these rules, they'll allow dancing inside? Yeah, you know, I don't think that it'll come right with this uh, next clarification. I think we'll yeah. just see that kind of capacity increase. That's just my personal thought. Who knows? But we'll see yeah. what happens. But I think that it will be hopefully next on the docket for restrictions to be released. Sarah, thanks for coming on today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's talk about paid sick days in Canada now and right here in British Columbia, the campaign for paid sick days really gaining steam across the country right now. The John Horgan government uh, in B.C. going through a public consultation process on this. How many paid sick days do you think workers should get per year in B.C.? How about four paid sick days a year or maybe six days? How about 10 paid sick days per year? Okay, let's discuss this now. We've got a fantastic panel for you. Kim Novak, pleased to welcome her back, president of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union Local 1518. And she is part of the campaign Paid Sick Days Now. I'm pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Kim. Hi. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for being back again. Also on the line is Seth Scott. Seth is a senior policy analyst for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business here in BC. They represent small business in the province. And they say that uh, business, a lot of businesses can't afford these paid sick days. Seth, thanks for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Okay, Seth, let me go to you first. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business, I know you've just polled a lot of business owners in BC about this issue. What did you find out? Yeah, Mike, uh, we just did a poll uh, with our members regarding uh, permanent paid sick leave. And what we found out is that our members are uh, not supportive because they're concerned with the cost. And, you know, that shouldn't really come as a surprise. You know, right now, 46% of small businesses in BC are making normal revenues. They're saddled with COVID-related debt and over $129,000 on average. And, you know, you know recovery is uncertain. Uh, that that's shown through our business barometer and, and talking to businesses. They just don't know what the future is going to hold. Uh, it's been a tough uh, last year and a half, and and it, it could be tough <laughs> going forward. So, you know, to put another cost on small businesses right now when they're just trying to get back on their feet uh, is is not uh, well timed or well planned. Okay, Kim Novak, what do you think of that? 
Well, I think it's important to know that in other jurisdictions uh, across the world, like New Zealand and Australia, that have brought in 10 paid sick days, they've actually seen economic growth happen because we do recognize that the pandemic has had hardship, particularly on small business. But by bringing in paid sick days, workers don't have to choose between coming to work sick and staying home without pay, which means they're not coming to work and getting their co-workers sick and ultimately, in the worst case scenario, shutting down that business so that they're not able to make money and everyone has to stay home. But also the fact that by bringing in paid sick days, like we have already with this three for COVID-related issues, we've seen an underutilization of those. And so if we were to move to 10, which we're certainly hoping that will happen, we recognize small business should be asking government for subsidies for that so that they don't have an even greater burden and instead can keep their workplaces healthy and stay up and running as we continue to work through this pandemic. Oh, okay. So you're saying, Kim, that what the government should pay for these sick days, is that right? I- Not the employers? I think it needs to depend on the business. So if it's a small business that's struggling and has been really hard hit by this pandemic, there certainly should be a pathway for subsidization from the government. When we see these large corporations who have done nothing but make profit through the pandemic, that should be borne by them. But I do hear the concern for small business, and there is a way to have both, the 10 paid sick days and ensure that they can continue to be up and running. Okay, Seth Scott, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, you know, our, our members have told us that, you know, they're not heartless. And, uh, you know, you know, I, I'm not here uh, talking on behalf of, of Amazon and Walmart. I'm talking on behalf of, you know, a, a local cafe or restaurant in the area. And, you know, they have told us that the cost is the biggest concern. And, uh, you know, when we talk about what the government would fully subsidize paid sick days, you know, our, our members, you know, they, they, they're inclined to support uh, paid sick days if, if they're not paying for it. You know, there may right. be some other concerns that would have to work out some some kinks in the policy regarding, you know, who, types of work and and uh, things like that. Um, you know, maybe proof of illness or other things. But, you know, if, if government is going to implement this program and they choose to fully fund it, then our members have told us that they would be all right with that. Okay, but that's not clear right now, right? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Seth. I believe the, the commitment from the BC government is to bring in paid sick days, right? But they haven't explained who will pay for it yet. Is that correct? Well, yeah, the commitment is to bring in, in paid sick days, and, and as far as uh, it's been indicated to us, uh, that's going to be employer pay. It's going to fall on yeah. the back of employees. Um, so, yeah, it, that's that's the big concern, right? You know, these yeah. are not. Uh, you know, this isn't Scrooge McDuck, you know, rubbing his hands together, jumping in a pile of money. You know, these are your neighbors. These are, are, are people that, have, that are hurting, that, that own small businesses and, and want to continue uh, to, to, you know, provide service to their communities. Um, and uh, they just can't afford the cost. So government, you know, is going to need to tell us if they're okay. planning on fully subsidizing this. Okay, Kim, I'm, I don't know. Are you getting any indications? Like Seth, Seth says that they've got some indications this would be an employer-paid program. Like what are you hearing on it? Well, the current program that's in place right now, which is temporary until the end of the year, is the three paid sick days for COVID-related illness. And then there is a government reimbursement to businesses up to the equivalent of about $20 an hour. And so when we look at that, one of the concerns we have is that definitely helps small business, but then government is also paying for the large businesses that are very, very profitable during this time. So what we are really pushing for is the 10 paid sick days. And I think that there does need to be consideration so that small businesses can stay up and running, that the people who are working there are able to have access to the same amount of paid time as some of these larger corporations. And to do that, I do think it makes sense to have an element of subsidization. Okay, Seth, do you have any concerns or do your members worry that if, 
let's say the government brought in 10 paid sick days per year, that you could have situations where employees uh, abuse that, like maybe they decide to take a sick day when they're not really sick, and then their employer gets stuck with the bill. Your thoughts? Yeah, listen, uh, our members have expressed some concern about that, and, and I think you know that could be alleviated with, with something as simple as saying, you know, you have to have some sort of, of, of proof of illness or some sort of, of, of you know, reasonable uh, uh, documentation or, or proof. I don't know what that would look like. I, I'll leave that up to government to decide. Uh, that is that is a concern. And I mean, you know, it, it is a I, I think that's a valid concern. You know, if you only have, you know, two or three employees and, you know, one employee decides to call on a sick day and, and they're not sick and then it erodes between, you know, the employer and the employee, and, and there's a whole bunch of issues that go along with it. But really, the main concern is, is cost. Okay, Kim, what about that? Is this a program that's open to abuse, potentially? Well, I think what we've experienced in our collective agreements or contracts that do have paid sick days is we actually see the majority of the people who have ability to take them not taking them because they only take them when they're sick. Now, we all know those people who are the anomaly. We know that person who's going to call in sick the Monday after Super Bowl. That's not what we're advocating for, and that should be addressed and dealt with by management as any issue would be. But when we look at the three days that are currently available for for all British Columbians for COVID-related illness, we are seeing an underutilization of what was even projected. And, and you know, when we see government uh, under coming in under budget for something, I think that's a really important sign that we aren't seeing these days en masse being abused. And therefore, we need to ensure okay. that the lowest income workers in BC do have access to these days, the same as the higher income earners do. All right. Welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about paid sick days in BC, Kim Novak from the United Food and Commercial Workers, Seth Scott, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, are my guests. Lots of calls here. Larry and Ladner. Hi, Larry. Yeah, hi. Yeah, listen, I got no problem with the paid sick days, but I don't think they should be able to accumulate them because too many times I see, like I had a postman for years and years, the day that he decided to retire, all of a sudden he had a bad back, so he collected all those sick days. You mean he was able to carry them over year after year? Exactly, and yeah. same as I think municipalities, some of them are the same way. Okay, Kim, That's what no- I don't agree with. Thanks for the call. Kim, what do you think of that? Well, our call for the legislative days is to ensure that they're there to be used for sick time. And we do know that in other jurisdictions, there has been the ability to carry some of those days over if they're unused, but they would be used for sick days. And I, I hear the concern on that. And I think really what we want to do is move away from the incentives of coming into work sick, so you're banking this time, and instead use those days to ensure that workplaces are healthier. Yeah. Seth, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, listen, I mean, you know, the devil is always in the details uh, with these kind of policies. And right now, we've just been told three, five or 10 days. We haven't been told if if they're going to be able to bank them or or, or what's happening. So, you know, I also hear the concern on that. And our members uh, definitely uh, would be concerned if someone's uh, banking uh, 10 days over and over and over again, and then they have 50 days in five years. Um, Yeah, so that, that definitely needs to be worked out. Mike in Parksville. Hey, Mike. Hey, yeah, Mike, I was just uh, wondering what's considered a small business is I worked for one for years that was 17, then merged with another one that was 80 employees, and they never had a problem with sick days. We were union, and I would rather see the government not be paying it because if, if the government pays it, the companies that I worked for would be uh, with their hand out, even though they're big now, saying, hey, why should we pay our employees? Okay, thank you for that. Well, Kim, you said earlier that maybe 
big businesses should pay this themselves, but small businesses should get some sort of government subsidy. Like, how do you define what's what's a big business and what's a small business? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. There needs to be a deeper dive into that. I, I guess what what the concern has been from small businesses, we can't afford to do this or we'll have to shut our doors. I mean, if you're at that point because of the hardship of this pandemic, there should certainly be government subsidy to ensure that paid sick days are keeping workers safe and making sure workplaces are safe. However, that only goes to a certain point when we see companies making big profit and continuing to do and flourish during not just this pandemic, but on an ongoing business model. It needs to be costed into the cost of doing business is investing in workers, and that includes paid sick time. So I think there needs to be an analysis on that to help businesses from not closing doors, but certainly not to continue to put it on taxpayers when employers can pay it. Okay, back to the phone lines. Nicole in Vancouver. Hi, Nicole. Hi there. Um, I just would like to hear a little bit of discussion about people putting some effort into their own health. And I don't agree with any kind of banking of sick days. If you need them, employers should be fluid with their ability to hand those out. But let's encourage people to take some responsibility for their own health. You know, I'm, I'm sick and tired of people talking about, oh, I'm sick, I need some time off. Well, what are you doing? Get Get some exercise. Eat properly. You know. Okay. Okay. Well, people. I mean, I don't know. People are still going to get sick. But Seth, let me ask you. Kim raised the the issue earlier that there's a cost to not having paid sick days because if you have staff that come in sick and maybe get your uh, their coworkers sick, I mean, that's a cost on business too, right? I mean, do you do you think that's a valid argument? I mean, yeah, you're right. No business right now wants to be uh, shut down uh, because of a COVID exposure. That's true. Um, but, you know, if you look back at our, at our, at our releases and, and what we advocate for, we're, we're always advocating uh, to, to keep businesses open and to protect public health at the same time. And small businesses want to do that. They're, they, you know, these are, are also members of the community. Uh, they love uh, where they work. <laughs> they love where their business is located. So I, what I would say to that is, you know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You don't have to have uh, employers pay for uh, 10 paid sick days and, and, and have that cost on their back. And also, uh, you know, tell them, well, if you don't do that, you're going to be shut down. I mean, you know, that's not that's kind of Sophie's choice for a business now, isn't it? They're saying we can't afford this. We're going to have to close our doors because we can't afford this program. Or we're going to have to close our doors because we don't have a COVID. Well, how, how do you way in the middle? How do you prevent a, a sick employee from coming to work then? How, sorry, was that? You broke well, how do you say so if you have a sick employee, if they have no sick pay and they, they don't get paid if they don't work and they're tempted to come in to work even when they are sick, how do you prevent that from happening without sick pay? Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, our, 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 the businesses that, uh, you know, the majority of the businesses, we're looking at about, you know, one to 10 employees is who we represent. You know, these are small teams. And, you know, they've told us uh, many times that they're flexible with their employees. They care about them. They don't want them uh, to be coming in sick to their business. And, then, you know, they're, they're willing to, to work with them and be flexible uh, about, you know, when they're coming in, how, how they're coming in to work, you know, all, you know, if they, some business already have sick day programs already. The, the yeah. point is a one-size-fits-all policy is right. not particularly uh, what we're going to be needing uh, going forward. And especially okay. if that one-size-fits-all is going to be uh, you know, on the back of uh, businesses financially. Squeeze in one more call here. Dave in Coquitlam. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. 
Yeah, hi. I'm just curious, how does the provincial government square off on on their own employees? Like, uh, do they get 10 sick days or do they not accumulate? Let me, let, me, uh, let me ask Kim. So if you're a unionized government employee in B.C., Kim, do you get paid sick days under your, the contract there? A lot of it would depend on the contract. So we represent some of our, our home support workers, for example, who are a part of the public health system, do qualify for sick days if they are in full-time positions. However, casual and part-time positions don't. And that's what we're trying to change so that you can continue to have your home support worker come and care for your loved one rather than have them uh, stay home or, unfortunately, make that decision to go to work anyway to ensure they get paid. And when we talk about this recovery through a pandemic, we're also talking about how we build a better, stronger society. So we don't see children sick all the time because their parents have sent them to school, even though they were sick. And I think that's the real the real thing we need to learn from this is how do we prevent the COVID exposures, but how do we prevent sickness exposure so that businesses continue to run and you don't have masks that call in just with the regular flu season? I think we really need to look beyond just this time we're in right now.